Welcome to the second segment of Speaker Peace. This is a podcast about Utah's history. Today's guest is Brendan Rensink. Hello again, Brendan. So glad to have you back. Good to be here. So in our previous uh, segment, we were talking about uh, uh, the uh, Intermountain Histories uh, website, and uh, we also spoke about uh, your most recent book. I want to also, just as we begin this segment, to talk about your podcast. Yeah, it's called Writing Westward. Um, I was trying to make a pun, you know, like riding on a horse, <laughs> but um, it's spelled writing because it's about authors. I don't know if it's a very good, it's a d- bad dad joke probably, but um, yeah, well, it's, a- <laughs> it's really a good, I mean, you all together, there's, I think you have more than eight uh, episodes. Uh, 16. 16. I'm about, I think, um, actually tomorrow, I think I'll be publishing um, the 17th one. So it's a, it's a monthly podcast. Each month I put out one episode. Um it's it's a one man show. I'm the host, producer, sound engineer, and everything, so I can't handle much more than an episode a month. But in each episode, I pick uh, someone, a writer. Um, a lot of them are academics, professors who are writing books. But I've also done some episodes with journalists, um, with literary uh, scholars. But each episode, we talk with them about something recent they've published, and. Uh, what it tells us about the West broadly, not just the Intermountain, but the the West quite broadly conceived. Well, and I think of the mission of the Red Center. I mean, now 50 years coming, it has been such a strong commitment to getting Western history out there, publications and uh, uh, conferences, workshops, um, uh, awards that are uh, money that's given to further research across the West. To me, I think this is the next great generate next generation of work yeah. that the Red Center will be doing. Um, and thank you for doing this. Um, do you have a few uh, uh, highlights that you'd like to talk about in writing? Um, I mean, all of the episodes are great, just <laughs> spectacular. Um, I've I've been able to speak with some really interesting people. Uh, one of my recent favorites, I I did an episode with Leah Satilli, who. Um, hosted the Bundyville podcast. Um, well, it was actually it was on Long Read. She it was a piece of long form journalism, two seasons worth, and then she turned each season into a podcast about the Bundys, um, and that was fascinating. Um, that was a fun one. We did a recent one on Bears Ears uh, about a really great book on the Bears Ears region and controversy. We've done ones about about fire history. Um, we did a book on Hawaii because you know. That's part that's, of the that's West. part of the West. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Um, it's it's just it's it's been a lot of fun. Well, and and to me, I just uh, love the way you're uh, interacting with the public. These are really wonderful public history products, and um, it makes history accessible to the general public. And and you get uh, kind of a I don't know, open the lid and really get the kind of great spontaneous thoughts from historians that in some ways, if you don't read their books, go to this website, go to, to this uh, podcast and get your dose of Western history. Yeah. The idea is I wanted to try to bridge that kind of academic and public world. And I want this podcast to be interesting to academics who, you know, are interested in these books and they've heard of them, but they haven't had time to read them. But then I try to balance it or kind of walk that line with also making it interesting to the general public. So I don't, we don't get too deep into the weeds. We try not to, at least, uh, on really nitty gritty things that only academics would find interesting. And so far, my, my wife has listened to many of them and said she found them interesting. And so, if I can get her on board, 
and judge of its yeah. accessibility to <laughs> yeah. the public. Yeah. And for that also, there's a, a Facebook um, page, uh, a Twitter feed, um, or a website. You can go to writingwestward.org and uh, kind of get updates for when there's new episodes. So uh, what I want to spend the measure of our time is talking about some of the tours that are available in Intermountain Histories. And there are, um, you're not only uh, just reading histories, but you're out there in the geographical landscape setting. You're reading, interacting with this website, and, and really kind of getting to see things, uh, what remains of the landscape or of the, the um, towns or cities. Let's talk first about the tour on... Um, the Utah home front during World War II. Yeah, so this is a, um, a tour created by one of the very first uh, research and editorial assistants on the project. And uh, her name was Aubrey Glazier. Um, I believe she's graduated now from BYU, but she put together a, a little tour, five stories that tell what was going on here uh, on the home front during World War II in Utah. Uh, there's a story about the Manti parachute plant where um, they were, you know, turning nylon uh, into parachutes uh, down in Sanpete County. Um, a couple of stories on uh, Geneva Steel, which, you know, no longer is, um, but about what they were doing there. Um, well, and it's such a big part of the economy of Utah and uh, had such a big uh, a print across Utah County on Utah Lake. And uh, its intentions were to stay away from where it could possibly be bombed. But it it um, it was a big, big part of the war effort. And Orem, as we know it today, is kind of bloomed because of this now long since gone, now 10 years, I think, uh, a big industrial plant. Yeah. it's it's. I always forget that it used to be out there. Um, um, yeah. There's a story about women, uh, another story about women at Geneva Steel that were working there. Because a lot of women went into the industrial workforce during the war. Um, and then a couple of stories up in Brigham City. Um, about the military hospital there, and then women that Bush were involved in salvage uh, drives trying to gather together materials and stuff for the war effort. And uh, what's the story about um, uh, the the uh, collecting materials uh, for the war effort? Uh, that was also a, sort of a domain of women. Uh, was that also out in the Manti or or uh, this was up in Pete? Brigham City? Oh, that's Brigham well, City. Yeah, the Utah Minute Women they called themselves, and they were associated with. Um, the Volunteer Salvage Corps, which was a division of the War Production Board. I mean, there's these huge federal um, mechanisms and programs of trying to save certain materials, collect certain materials. So they were out, um, you, you know, collecting um, what they called household fats. So going out and collecting, you know, uh, sugar and other things that they could then um, use, you know, to, to feed the soldiers. They were doing lots of publicity, trying to encourage um, women to... Uh, not wear nylons because nylon was needed to make parachutes mm -hmm. and some other materials. And so, you know, they would instead, um, they're encouraging, you know, paint your legs instead of wearing nylons. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, kind of a part of this big, I mean, a lot of it was publicity and PR, um, trying to get people on board with making personal sacrifice uh, mm -hmm. for the war effort. And women were really central in this, not just in Brigham City, but across the United States. And so it's the 75th anniversary of the uh, end of World War II. And so I want to tell those of you who are listening, if you want to understand what's going on in Utah during this time, there's so many different places to go. Um, by the way, we'd urge you to get to Topaz, to, to the Topaz Museum. Uh, as many of you probably are aware, um, 
Topaz was a um, site where um, many Japanese Americans, many from with fully uh, full citizenship, uh, were uh, placed for years um, uh, incarcerated during World War II. Uh, that story is so poignant, so strong, and it's told through the museum in Delta. So besides that. I want to say get to and we, we have a tour story. on Topaz. You do, don't you? Yeah, there's a there's we have six stories um, on Topaz and kind of covering uh, the history broadly. There's a story about youth and children specifically and children's experiences at Topaz. Um, one about uh, a couple biographies of individuals' experiences. One about uh, an escape, um, and then one about. Um, a really interesting one, which surprised me. It was about Japanese American internees from Topaz being. Uh, bust up to Provo and Orem to, to labor camps. Mm -hmm. uh, so they were working, uh, I mean, in, in my backyard, um, but uh, uh, originally been interned down there. Well, and and so uh, during this 75th anniversary, you can uh, get on to Intermountain Histories. You, if you're up in Brigham City, or, or really, don't you encourage this kind of tours where people take the tour of the cluster in Brigham City, uh, take the tour uh, uh, in Delta, uh, all these different sites. I mean, I'm not necessarily, well, I guess I am suggesting get in your car and go to all of them this yeah, year. Yeah, take a road trip. Um, I mean, you often see those historical markers driving by. And I'm ashamed to say as a historian, you know, that me and my family, we rarely stop at them, you know, because we're on road trips. We're trying to, we have a 16 hour drive and we want to keep moving. Um, so this is a great way. You don't have to stop you can pull your app up and still learn about stuff as you're driving around or go specifically to one of these places. Often there are historical markers at these places or there's museums like at Topaz, mm -hmm. but you can also supplement that with the, with the app or the website. Well, and that's what the app, app is so good for is uh, certainly you can read the monuments, but uh, let the story come together for you in a more fuller way by uh, using the app. And there you see often some historical photographs which um, it's, it's really interesting, you know, to go to a place and you can see it, but then to open up the app and see what it looked like a hundred years ago or photos of, you know, a specific event that happened. There were people that lived there. It's important to embed those historical images, you know, as you're out there in the landscape. Well, and it's so surprising how with the weather and just uh, how things are in Utah, it doesn't take much before it appears as if nothing were, was there. And there was a whole lot of things going on across the landscapes in Utah, in our cities, as well as in the open landscapes. Yeah, we're also trying to uh, put a pin on every building on BYU campus. I noticed that. Uh, but we're also doing them for buildings that no longer exist. So, um, you know, erosion in the landscape takes things out of, uh, you know, historical things. But we also t tear them down and uh, our cities rebuild things over them. So it's kind of also fun to put pins on buildings that no longer exist. Well, and you have the histories on each one of these buildings and in a way it allows us to pause and think about uh, the present and what we're doing hereafter. Historic preservation is not just a, a humorous or a aesthetic pastime. Uh, so much of the economic development, but also our sense of identity is involved in preservation. And I think a site like yours gives people a chance to think, okay, did we, did we duly, did we really do the right thing? Yeah. I mean, what do we choose as a society to keep and preserve and remember, not just in terms of what buildings we tear down or what ones we restore and make look like, you know, like say for like the Provo city library, which used to be the Brigham Young Academy. Mm -hmm. And there was a moment uh, a few years back where it was going to be torn down and there's this huge grassroots uproar 
uh, and they preserved it. And it's a beautiful building. I'm so glad they saved it. Um, Me too. I, I have to, just a personal note. Uh, as a young man, I was part of the Brigham Young Academy Foundation, and we were a couple of young people with a couple of older people who were uh, running against a very hard push of people who just wanted it raised. Yeah. Uh, it, but it says a lot of, about our, our culture and society and makes us ask questions. But as I was going to say, not just about buildings, but also, you know, on this site or in any kind of history that you sample, uh, there's a lot of um, politics involved. And I don't mean that in terms of like Republican, Democrat politics, but social politics about as a society, what do we choose to remember mm-hmm. and or even commemorate? Mm-hmm. Um, and what do we choose to forget? And sometimes things are forgotten accidentally. But sometimes things are intentionally not yeah. remembered. And it's yeah. important to think about that really critically um, uh, in our own lives, but also, you know, in our societies and communities. And so this website and all this history work that all of us are interested in doing is trying to get at that, is trying to help the public think critically about what, what stories do we tell ourselves? And it's really important to ask that question. You know, the tours, there are many of them, uh, so many of them uh, – relate to Utah, but of course they relate to the greater Western story. uh, Tell me about the Chinese immigrants in Idaho tour. This was another tour developed by one of our interns. Her name was Danny Carmack. And she put together a tour. It's uh, five stories about Chinese immigrant experiences in the state of Idaho. Um, Some of these are urban stories in Boise and other cities. Some of them are about um, mining, about violence against Chinese miners, for instance. Um, And then also, um, surprisingly, there were a number of um, uh, Chinese agriculturalists, farmers. Um, Often when we think about Chinese labor in the West, we think of mining and we think of the railroad. Transcontinental railroad. But we forget that lots uh, went into farming as well. There's some other ones uh, not in this tour, but about Japanese um, farmers in Idaho as well. There was a large multicultural agricultural uh, community in Idaho that is often not thought about, is is, is forgotten. Well, and so many of them uh, interacted with Salt Lake City, uh, uh, Japantown in Salt Lake City which was where the Salt Palace was, was kind of the base camp for many of those across the Intermountain West. Uh, the newspapers were here. Um, uh, the, the Just a whole lot of culture and uh, churches. And uh, so what happened in Idaho connects with Utah in a very big way. Yeah, and I think many people listening to the podcast, if they're from Utah, many of them probably have some family story that stretches out into Idaho or southern Utah or Nevada. I mean, the, the region is interconnected by family histories, economies, railroads. You know, it's it. at one point, it's not always useful to draw our state boundaries and say that the stories end there, because they rarely do. No, they don't. I, I know with the Utah Historical Quarterly, which is a, an incredible uh, 75-year uh, continuous-run publication, um, its focus is Utah, but it's it's impossible not to tell a Utah story without engaging the broader areas of, of the West. Well, um, the Chinese uh, immigrants in Idaho is a tour, the Utah home front during world war two. Um, tell us about the snake river and what's going on with that tour. Yeah, this was, um, one of the, maybe the first, um, intern that we had, um, uh, his name was Josh Franzen, and um, I, I run a, a, each semester. I run an internship with one or two student interns, and they study public history. They do a bunch of readings and stuff, and then I send them out to 
create a tour of stories of their own, and we edit it together and work on it. And you think about this, other professors are doing the same thing yeah. for Intermountain uh, History. Yeah, so, so I forgot I probably should do it too, right? <laughs> but, uh, but Josh did this great uh, tour. It's eight stories all about uh, irrigation on the Snake River, um, just north of us, mostly in eastern Idaho. So this involved um, a series of dams all down the Snake River and then the reclamation and irrigation uh, projects associated with that. And... Um, actually, Japanese internment pops up there as well because some um, Japanese internees were used um, as laborers at the, the Minidoka camp. Um, uh, there's a story about the Teton Tam, which burst um, and uh, uh, flooded some communities. Um, and it's a, I mean, my uh, in-laws, they have um, uh, a cabin up in the Island Park area, um, the grandparents' generation does. And so it's fun kind of going up there now and I can tell the family, oh, look, there's the Island Park Dam. Quick, everyone pull out your apps and you know, read up <laughs> Take on it. Take a look it. at it. Yeah, yeah. See what's going on. But, you know, we drive by these, you know, these huge hulking structures of these large dams, and we drive on by, and we forget that there's, you know, of course, really interesting histories about their construction, but there's uh, individual human stories about laborers and the things that, you know, they struggled in building it. And then there's the stories of the farmers who benefited from the irrigation. So each one of these stories, you know, end on a random dam or a random spot, you know, it, it spins out to involve a lot of individual human stories that we may not often think about or associate. Well, and then as, as I see it, there's opportunities to see different perspectives where you see the farmer's perspective or the immigrant, uh, uh, the, the minorities uh, working. Uh, there's so many different ways uh, of uh, turning the spotlight uh, on, on the very same story. Yeah. Or a different, there's a different tour on, um, uh, a proposed dam uh, that didn't go through. And I mean, that story is about the controversy of building a dam because it's going to flood a landscape. Um, and that's something we often don't think about as well. We go boating or fishing in these reservoirs, but we forget that someone may have lived, you know, 30 feet under us underwater, you know, and, and their, their homeland was, or their homestead or farms, you know, were flooded. I, I think of uh, close by where I live at Deer Creek a Reservoir, where you, there was a, you know, a railroad and uh, roads and, couple of towns there that uh, all but disappeared. And of course, we can say the same about the great dams uh, across the Colorado that have such an impact. And, and we're arguing today about the, the, the viability and the appropriateness of them. And yet, I think you can have somebody read about that particular dra- uh, dam and understand some of those broader stories across the West. Tell me about the CC in the West, the uh, Civilian Conservation Corps in the West. What a big impact across the West with reclamation and uh, building roads and so on. Um, tell me about that tour. Yeah, this is written by uh, Sarah Burt, who is a master's student at Northern Arizona, Northern Arizona University working in their public history uh, program there with Professor Mike Amundsen. She has a little four-story tour about the CCC in the West. And there's uh, much more than four stories that could be told if you've gone to a national park or national monument or a forest service campground or trail uh, anywhere in the West, there's a high probability that you are walking on a trail or in a campground or on a road uh, that was built or maintained by the Civilian Conservation Corps during the New Deal, this program that brought out you know, thousands and thousands of young men from across the United States, um, not just to the West, but most of them came to the West. Mm-hmm. To, uh, to build things, to do soil erosion, uh, you know, remediation programs, building some of the terracing we see on 
the mountains here in Utah, for instance, mm-hmm. were CCC projects. And they uh, brought them out. They uh, were paid, but the money was all sent to their families back home. Yeah, they got a, they got a little portion, but most of it went yeah. home. So it was a way to keep young men off the streets, give them something to do, and also help their families back home. Kind of part of this really broad economic stimulus project. But uh, this uh, a tour has um, stuff about a few historic buildings, um, the Rimrock uh, Drive, uh, some work in Arches National Monument, and then in Capitol Reef National Monument. Uh, at, what at the time were national monuments, now they're national parks. But some of the things that the CCC was doing and building there. And it's fun to go there, and every once in a while you'll notice on the pavement, sometimes there'll be a little uh, imprint uh, somewhere that says built by the CCC 1937 or on bridges. And sometimes you can spot those in national parks. So much of our recreational landscape, um, very romantic landscapes, uh, beautiful rock structures, uh, uh, bridges, uh, dams. Um, we often just experience these recreational or these uh, seemingly um, uh, out-of-the-way wilderness settings when, in fact, they have been imprinted deeply by this program. And and in some ways, we look at it uh, very gratefully for it. I mean, uh, I think of some of the roads, uh, the uh, skyline drives across our Rocky Mountains, across our Wasatch Front, they were built by this Conservation Corps. Yeah. And the, the Works Progress Administration, there were a number of these groups that were building things um, and, you know, large scale dam projects, uh, you know, during the new deal, so much money, so much infrastructure uh, poured into our region that we still benefit from today. Uh, this is wonderful. Uh, I, I can't think of uh, someone who is uh, more engaged in public history than the Red Center. I can't think of someone who's uh, interacting more with the public uh, than you, Brendan, and your work uh, at BYU. I commend you for what you're doing and so grateful to you for being part of Speak Your Peace today. Thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. My name is Brad Westwood, and this is sponsored by the Utah Department of Heritage and Arts. The past is never truly in the past. It's all around us. It informs us. It speaks both of our shared and to our separate identities. Speak Your Peace is a podcast where writers, historians, anyone who can tell us something that we really need to know about can share their insights and discoveries. Uh, if you have one place one podcast to get your Utah history fix. This is the place. Brendan, thank you so much for being a part of Speak Your Peace today. Thanks, Brad. I hope you'll tune in again 